Hi, I'm Piper. And I'm Erin. Welcome to Off the Tracks Podcast, where we explore what it means to do law differently. Monica Shohan is a first-generation born child of immigrants from Punjab, India. Originally from Calgary, Monica spent time living abroad prior to beginning her joint law and master's of public administration degree at Queen's University. She began her legal career in the federal public service and then moved to in-house roles as a regulatory lawyer in corporate Canada. After leaving in-house practice, Monica launched Shohan Law alongside a separate facilitation and consulting practice. And from 2017 to 2020, she worked part-time alongside the founder of an organization focused on the well-being of girls called Dandelion Dance. Today, Monica continues to run her own legal practice through Shohan Law, where she provides governance training and related advisory services to not-for-profit boards. She also conducts workplace investigations and is in the process of developing a related mediation practice. Alongside her work at Shohan Law, Monica also provides strategic advisory and facilitation services through her business, Will Broadhouse Consulting. Monica, we are so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's really, um, I'm just so excited about being able to talk to you and I've listened to a whole bunch of your episodes and I think it's so great what you're doing. So I'm really uh, honored to be asked. Oh, thank you. We have really been looking forward to this. This is a long time in the making. So Monica, can you tell us a little bit about how your career has evolved over time through your eyes? It's that is like it's a very big question. And I guess it's a really big question because I'm not um, I'm somebody who uh, I've meandered a lot. Right. Like there was somebody who I ran into very recently um, that that used to we used to work in the same industry as each other. Um, and uh, he called me. Okay, I'm trying to figure out how I pronounce this. Para pathetic peripatetic anyway anyway it's a it's a word see look at me I'm a lawyer I'm supposed to know all the words right but I'm like how do I pronounce that um it's a word which is you know you're just sort of like wandering from here to there and he made the little like walkie (laughs) um you know his like fingers are walking and he's like oh that's just you Monica like you know and you know and it was a funny thing because um you know and I think I've always been really aware of this that my journey, um, it can be hard to understand from the outside, right? So, you know, so this whole thing about becoming a lawyer, so like, I'm going to try to say this in the smallest nutshell that I can. Uh, I am going to say that my father always wanted me to be a lawyer, and he also wanted me to become a politician. So when I was like a a kid, like a toddler, I remember watching the news with him and and like he would coach me on things, right? And uh, like I remember this very, very distinctly. Um, and then at whatever point I, you know, entered sort of like, you know, my preteens, I was like, I'm not going to become a lawyer. This is stupid. Like, you know, and I, I, I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. And it, it was, you know, this like rebellion thing. Um, uh, and, you know, somewhere along the way, um, you know, my parents were like, well, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do with your life? My dad was always really big on the idea of having a plan. And I remember being in high school and preparing to go to university and um, I don't even know how this happened, but I said, I'm going to go to med school. I mean, like seriously, right? Like I, like it was just, it was just this thing that came out of my mouth. And then suddenly I was committed. I thought I was committed to that path. And Anyway, that was a big mess. It was a it was a huge disaster. Um, I uh, discovered in my early 30s that I have ADHD, 
Um, I did not know this through my, you know, any of my education. I had no idea. Um, and so, you know, um, for anybody who has uh, entered undergrad and is intending to become a doctor, you know that, that there's this first couple of years where you're like, you're sitting and you're, you're memorizing and you're, um, you know, like there's just like tomes and tomes of information that you have to like stuff into your brain. And I couldn't do it. Right. I just could not. Um, uh, anyway, I won't go too far into that, but <laughs> at some point I totally flamed out. Um, I woke up one morning in the middle of, um, a finals sort of, uh, period. Um, it was like a December and I remember thinking, I just am not going to go write this exam. Like I, I was like, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I remember going down. I remember like, this was not like me. I was always an uber responsible person. Um, and so I remember going downstairs a few hours later and my mom <laughs> was home and she looked at me and she said, aren't you, aren't you supposed to be writing an exam today? And I was like, yeah. And she said, do you want breakfast? Like she was, she was so like, she could just so tell she'd known for such a long time. I was miserable. Anyway, that all led to, I mean, there was huge fallout with my dad and whatnot, and I'm still trying to figure out what to do. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, that led to, you know, a bit of a period of exploring and, um, you know, taking different courses. I thought for a while I might do a business degree, um, ended up taking economics as part of that. Um, and then I realized that I really thought economics was very, very interesting. So then I was set on a path to complete an honors economics degree because I thought I would go to do um, graduate studies and become an economist or at least have that skill set. Um, and I had always really enjoyed literature like and, and writing about literature and thinking about literature. So I did a double degree um, and uh, did very, very well. Right. So by like finished, did very, very well. But discovered as I was, you know, getting into those higher years uh, in an economics program, just how much math was involved. And it was so so this is not just like, you know, regular old math, <laughs> if, which might just sound for most lawyers like a complete nightmare. Like, it, you know, this wasn't like first year calculus stuff that was scary. There was this thing called linear algebra. And then there was this thing called eigenvalues. And somehow they came together into this insane sort of theoretical universe that I could never wrap my head around. So, um, you know, so I was completing that and I was like, well, what am I going to do? And I, I really had this interest, maybe I'll just say here, you know, I really had this interest at that point when I started that economics um, program in eventually getting into public policy of some kind. And I was interested in politics, but I still wasn't going to tell my dad that. So, so I was like, public policy, public policy, I'll become an economist. And, you know, and so, um, I uh, was trying to figure out what else would I do, right, to, to get into sort of, um, you know, the public policy realm. And then I was like, oh, maybe I'll go to law school. And, and so I was looking around at programs and I discovered that there was this whole universe out there of um, uh, joint degree programs, um, you know, in the realms of law and public policy or public admin. Decided to go to Queen's. Um, and so that's how it happened. But I, I mean, I entered law school thinking, well, I'm not going to be a traditional lawyer. And um, I also had in the back of my mind that um, my mom's siblings actually all, um, you know, 
went to law school at one point or another, and they had gone through the process of working for, you know, large law firms, and, you know, some of the big Bay Street law firms. And I knew it was a lifestyle from very early on that shoot people up and spat them out. And I, I actually just didn't want to do that. So this is how much I was like, I'm going to law school to be able to, I don't know, learn stuff that I think really matters to public policy. But that was that was it. So, OK, that was like a really big nutshell. Maybe I'll just pause. <laughs> no, it's OK. We we love we loved it. We love it. And we know that you have so much more to say, which we will get into, but there's so many things, Monica, that I just, um, you know, Aaron and I, if people have listened to off the tracks long enough, uh, they know that Aaron and I have like a document where we type to each other while the episode is going on. And we say, Ooh, like, this is so you, or this is so you. And, um, Aaron sent me a message being like, Piper, you've got to jump in here. And it's true. Um, I was really curious if you could tell us a bit more about your adult ADHD diagnosis, because I think this is such a prominent trend for yeah. women and not just because, you know, uh, Aaron and I talk about things like this all the time. We talk about TikTok trends and it's a very big trend right now to get all of your mental health information from TikTok. But in reality, um, later in life diagnoses for women with ADHD is, is growing. And I myself was diagnosed with ADHD almost a year ago in February, 2022. I'm like, what year is it? February, 2022. And, um, I don't know if it's anything I've talked about on the podcast. I don't have an issue about talking about it, but, um, I think the reason that I haven't talked about it a lot is because I'm still trying really hard to figure it out. And yeah. so I'm wondering if you'd be open to talking to us a little bit about like what your experience has been, has been with adult, like being diagnosed with ADHD and like how it impacts your day-to-day work and practice. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I look back and maybe this will help to shed some light on just what a difference it can make to be diagnosed is maybe to tell you what life was a bit like before I was diagnosed. Um, so when, you know, they, there's definitely, there's a lot of research out there and there's a school of thought that girls, um, you know, of a certain generation or women of a certain generation, um, you know, experienced a lot of like just misdiagnoses when they were um, much younger. So I'm, I'm, I'm 42. Um, you know, when I was going through school, um, you know, like every ADHD was a thing that, you know, it was boys, everybody was in their minds, it was, you know, hyperactive boys and boys who were disruptive and just wouldn't sit down and wouldn't behave. And um, I was a very quiet um, uh, kid uh, in in class, at least. <laughs> um, I actually had a huge fear of um, public speaking and I had a huge fear of being called on. And the reason for it was that um, I had really poor um, memory. And so I could, I, I like a really poor memory. And so I could play with ideas. I loved writing. I loved coming up with like problem solving um, of all of the sciences that I ever did. I did the best in physics, believe it or not. Um, and biology was my absolute nemesis, right? And it was because physics, there was very little <laughs> um, uh, uh, memorization involved, at least in the, um, up to the point where I, did that. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, that was a huge problem for me. I would um, typically, you know, I would cram very, very intensely for exams. And this is, you know, from the time that I was quite young, 
cram all the information in. I used to like repeat it over and over and over and over and over and over, get into an exam, spit it out. And then it's gone. Like if I wasn't doing something with the information, it didn't, it really, it was kind of inconsequential. Um, and I was never going to remember it. So actually being in class, I, I sat at the back of the class quite often. I didn't want to be noticed. I did not want to be called on. Um, going through, um, you know, so that carried through from when I was very young to high school to um, university. Um, I actually cut a lot of classes where I felt um, really uh, anxious that I would be called on. Um, I was terrified, like this whole like Socratic method thing that um, law school professors would do where they just call on you. The reason it terrified me is because um, at some point, so I always used to love reading when I was a little girl, loved it, loved it. Um, at some point, things got so bad that I, I had trouble reading. Uh, and it's not that I couldn't read. I'm actually, uh, there's a lot of people out there who wouldn't believe me because when, from when they knew me back when it was like, but you were always reading and, you know, literature and writing essays and these things, these were all the things that you were amazing at. Um, but going to law school classes was terrifying for me because I had a hard time reading the cases beforehand. Right. Um, and like, they were really boring. Right. And, <laughs> and so, so I, um, <clears throat> anyway, I don't know how, sometimes I just have no idea how I made it through law school. Um, eventually, um, you know, this whole thing about being unable to focus and being unable to really sit down and like read a book. Like there was a point in my life where things got so bad that that pleasure that I used to take away from reading was gone. Like there's, there's like a span of so many years where I just did not read books. Um, so when I finally, you know, school's over, I don't, I still, I don't know how I passed the bar exams. This is all going to give like my, my clients, you know, current and perspective, I'm sure a lot of confidence in me. Um, <laughs> believe me, I'm really good at stuff. I just, I just do things differently, right? I, I learn differently. I, I go about doing things differently than a lot of people. Um, so anyway, um, I finally ended up diagnosed when, um, I was having a real crisis work-wise, um, you know, uh, sort of early in my legal career, part of that had to do with like office politics and, and just bad workplace environments. Um, but part of it was just, I, I, I was so bored. I was so understimulated that um, there were times when I'd be sitting at my desk and literally I, I was falling asleep. Like it was so bad, uh, it was so intense. And um, I, so this is like in my, like, I think I was like, I must've been like 31. And I finally spoke, to, met a therapist, you know, was speaking to her. This isn't actually something I was talking to her about, but one day I, I went in and I was very, very distressed about this level of boredom and this level of just feeling like I couldn't make myself do the thing. Um, and uh, she asked me some questions and she was like, you are a textbook ADHD case. And I was like, what? <laughs> right? Um, anyway, went to go see my family doctor. Referred, she referred me to a psychiatrist. Uh, this is at a time where somehow I didn't have to wait forever and ever to see one or like where it wasn't feeling totally impossible to see one. And I'm telling you, the day that I found the right med for me, it was like... I actually woke up 
Like, I feel like I, I spent a lot of my life walking through life. It felt like my, um, I was always half asleep. Um, I relied on a lot of caffeine and I was a total adrenaline junkie. So anybody who's been diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, you start to recognize patterns in yourself. You have a hard time doing things until, you know, um, until it's like very last minute. Um, and you, but you, you thrive under pressure, like it, like you really thrive under pressure and you can have this like laser focus and just be so you can churn stuff out. So Piper, I don't remember exactly what your question was. I've just been going on and on and on. But this was this was the difference, right? Like suddenly I was reading books again. That was huge. Suddenly I was reading books again for pleasure. Suddenly I, I finished books written by like Virginia Woolf. And I read The Sound and the Fury. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. Like I, I was suddenly able to do all of these things. And that was amazing. That was like, I like, and that had nothing, I mean, whatever, you know, work wasn't as stressful anymore in the sense of, you know, sitting down and doing things that I thought were really boring. But um, it was like that, that level of being able to like engage with life and get pleasure from these things that was just game changing. Monica, thank you so much for sharing. I genuinely feel like you just described my entire life with one exception, zero people would ever describe me as a quiet kid um, or a quiet adult, but literally everything else you described, um, yeah, was like eerily similar. And so, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think it's so helpful and like important to talk about. And I think as well, like the legal profession still has a long way to go in terms of accepting neurodivergence and just differences in general. And I think ADHD is one of those things and anxiety and depression and so on and so forth are things that are still so wildly misunderstood. Um, and it, for so many people, ADHD is a superpower. And so thank you so much for sharing, because I don't think anyone is going to, um, listen to this and think, Oh, I shouldn't be working with Monica. They should be like, oh no, Monica can get shit done for me. So well, that's exactly it. I do get shit done. <laughs> so, you know, and in fact, um, I think one of my biggest struggles with ADHD now that I work for my, and I, I realized this look, looking back is that when I was feeling understimulated at work, like not challenged, bored, like it was pointless, I was doing a lot of stuff outside of work. I was pushing myself. So I was like the best board member that you could ever ask for on a not-for-profit board because I was learning, learning, learning. I was creating, I was doing. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, like, as I had to get it from somewhere, I really had to get it from somewhere. Um, and I'm still, you know, uh, like my, my partner jokingly, but half jokingly and with a lot of love will occasionally call me a workaholic. And that's actually something that I've been working on um, quite closely, um, especially after uh, I was hospitalized with COVID in 2021. It was a very, very severe case. Um, and um, I spent a long time recovering from that. Like I was on oxygen for close to two months. Uh, like, anyway, it was terrifying. Um, so after that, actually, I was like, I actually am doing so much better. I um, am working totally full time. I have been for quite some time. 
Um, but I had to, I was like, okay, whoa, like I can't do the 60 or 70 hours a week that I was doing before. I really, really have to have weekends and evenings mostly to myself. So yeah, not that I, so I'm not going to be like, oh, yay, COVID, you know, like, but, but (laughs) I took whatever lesson I had to from it. So yeah, we are so glad to hear that you are doing well and sorry to hear that you had to go through all of that. I can only imagine how scary it was, but very glad that you're here and healthy and, and doing well now. But that is sort of the next question that we had for you is how do you balance and separate, you know, both having well broad house consulting and Shohan Law? So it's really interesting. Um you know, in that there's way more connection between the two than anyone would realize. And frankly, if, if, you know, the regulations for the way that lawyers, you know, market and what you can do, you know, under like through certain bank accounts, like through one bank account and whatnot, if those things were different, um, I would have, I'd be advertising everything under a single brand. Um, In any case, um, I uh, balance and separate them um, in two ways. So the first is that not every client is out there being like, I need the strategic planner and the facilitator who's also the lawyer who's going to help us with this governance problem for our organization. So a lot of my work is with not-for-profit organizations. That's not all of my work. I've definitely worked with um, for-profit organizations and I've done um, work with public sector, so federal government um, um, organizations. Um, But, you know, when an organization is dealing with something as a board of directors, for example, um, they're looking for somebody to help them with that. They're looking for somebody somebody to help them with a governance issue. And so they're they're going to Chohan Law. Like that's why they're talking to me. That's why they're coming to me. Um, if somebody is, you know, if there's an organization that's entering into a strategic planning process, or let's say they're trying to convene a very important discussion of some kind, they need to make decisions, but they need somebody to help them to come together, have a conversation and, you know, make decisions and like actually walk away with a plan for how they're going to move forward. Um, You know, they're looking for a facilitator um, or somebody with um, strategic planning experience. And so that's why they're coming to me. So, so I actually emphasize this because I think it's really important when you're doing a lot of different things um, as a lawyer, um, it's really important to think about like, you know, your role in each client engagement and making sure you're really like setting the appropriate boundaries. Um, You know, if a client is asking you to do some legal work and non-legal work, just like really making sure that, um, you know, you're um, aware of and upholding your professional and ethical boundaries around that. Um, But in terms of like the actual, like, is it a lot of work? Like sometimes is it hard to balance the two? Um, Yes. Sometimes it is. Um, I got to a point, though, uh, where I was like, all right, you know what? I've now been doing this for like six, seven years, like full time. Like, this is the thing. And um, I was like, if I'm going to take things to the next level, and I'm not sure what next level means exactly. So don't don't ask me too many hard questions about that. But like, (laughs) if I'm going to take things to the next level, I have got to have somebody helping me with the business. So um, I hired a um, a fractional business manager and she's incredible. So I had actually worked with her um, previously um, at Dandelion and she is a game changer. Her name is Sarah Picard. 
don't try to take her away from me. Um, but <laughs> like major game changer. Um, and so that's one thing. Uh, and the other thing I started doing is um, bringing on people who are uh, on the Wilbrod House side, bringing people on uh, to work on projects together, um, co-facilitate together. Sarah and I actually do a lot of co-facilitation together, but there's also other people that we work with now. And um, when you do that, you can do more for more clients. Um, you can take on more, you can deliver, you know, you can still deliver on timelines um, that make sense. Um, and you can do a lot of things more cost-effectively. Um, so um, so that's, those are a couple of things. So I see two layers to the question that you asked and, and that's how I approach things at those two layers. Monica, that's so helpful. And I think that that's such a good lesson that Aaron and I are, have both like been learned over the past while about the importance of bringing people on to help, um, and how it can really help you, you know, when you hire the right people, um, it can really help elevate your business. Um, so I have so many questions I want to ask you about Chohan Law and Will Broad Consulting, except, I know that something that's really important to you is the work you did at Dandelion Dance. And yeah. I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit more about that experience, because I know that it really, um, it was like a really pivotal point in your career. And I'd love, we're just really curious about it. Yeah. So I have always, so the place of women and girls in the world has always been very close to my heart. Um, I, I hate saying women's issues or girls' issues because they're actually like, you know, issues that sh that should matter to everybody and they have implications for everybody. Um, but but so those, you know, the the things that women and girls experience in the world um, um, are things that um, I've always paid a lot of attention to from the time that I was very, very young um, and, uh, you know, have as, a, as somebody who was once a girl and is now a woman, right, have, you know, dealt with like all of the nasty things that the world will throw your way. Um, and I, um, you know, when some the first board of directors that like I was on, like when I first started to join boards, I was very focused on organizations providing services to women and children, you know, leaving situations of violence or, you know, um, women and girls affected by sexual violence in particular. And so um, that is a realm in which I have a very long standing interest and it has taken um, in a good way, not in a good way, because it sucks that these things are happening, um, especially on the scale that they're happening. But it's a, an area that I've devoted a lot of time to um, trying to support and trying to do uh, work on the ground um, outside of my quote unquote day job, um, or I was always, uh, sorry, when I was, you know, not doing what I'm doing now and I was doing the corporate Canada thing. Um, so I, um, I remember um, somebody that I met through some of my board work, um, who's now a very, very good friend. She, she, she ran her own fundraising consultancy and um, she said to me one day, she said, you really need to come to this thing with me tonight. And she's like, have, like, it's this, it's this dance performance. I don't know how to describe it to you, but like, it's all about girls and uh, you really have to come with me. And so I said, okay, like, let's go. Um, and it was this uh, event that was held at 
um, Algonquin. Um, uh, so there's Algonquin, Algonquin College here in Ottawa, uh, and there's a really big theater. So like seats like 400 people. Um, and I was sitting there during this performance, which was this, you know, this performance that uh, by a dance troupe that referred to themselves as a social justice dance troupe. And the um, the creative director, the performance company's director was a woman named Hannah Beach. And Hannah um, and I met there and I remember sitting and watching this performance and I was like, it, it was the most moving thing I'd ever seen. Like there were girls of all shapes, sizes. There was one young woman um, with Down syndrome. There were girls who um, were speaking about things they'd experienced in their lives, which had actually inspired them to create the works that they presented. So it wasn't really dance in the sense that people are thinking. Nothing about this was competitive dance. It was it was a multidisciplinary um, experience. And there was this was all work that the girls had created themselves. So their own ideas and they were supporting each other to create their pieces. Um, and I remember thinking, I just need to get involved with this. I just need to learn more about it. So Hannah and I met and um, I realized it took me a long time to understand what she had created. And she had created this thing um, over 20 years of experience with um, kids, both boys and girls, actually. And then she decided at some point that she was going to focus on creating something and creating a program that would give girls a really safe, like the safest possible place um, to be able to come and actually just be themselves and um, build safer connections with each other and actually just learn to learn who they were, right? And 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 really connect with who they who they were, what they wanted. Um, you know, and um she um and I she eventually asked me if I would help her to scale up uh, the programs because she had received some funding from um, a foundation. And so we started to partner together on that. And over time, I really realized that um, all of, there's a lot of work that we talk about today, like trauma is a big buzzword, right? So trauma-informed programming or, um, uh, you know, the other, you know, buzzwords around like attachment and things like that. Um, well, Hannah had actually been doing all of this stuff as somebody who was not a psychologist, she was an artist, she was an artist but she really understood kids and she was doing all of this work. And what she had done was take a trauma-informed approach to creating an incredibly safe program for girls. And, and the experiences they would have from this were just amazing. And you would see these transformations in the girls over a year, like because most of them would come back year after year. So some of them had started with Hannah when they were five years old and they had stayed with her through to when they were graduating um, from high school and going on to university or doing whatever they were going to do with their lives. Um, and so I, there, this whole program and this whole approach was really about supporting girls um, and their well-being and helping them to build resilience and just really be strong in who they were. And it was really terrible when we had to shut things down. It was a pandemic casualty. It's extremely challenging to get funding for girls programs. It's, it's even more challenging when your program is not geared only to girls that are thought of as being stereotypically at risk. Um, we did everything that we could, um, but you know you have to learn. 
you have to know when to call it a day. And so we did. And now she's doing amazing stuff. Uh, she created a program that's being delivered in the States through Britannica and uh, Mexico as part of Head Start programming for kids uh, in the States. And it really makes me sad that we, we don't have the support, like funders who will fund this kind of work here. So I, I feel like that was a bit of dithering, but, um, but it mattered a great deal. Give me a sec. <laughs> no, it's okay, Monica. Oh, it's, so, it's so yeah. Like take your take your time, take a breath. It's it's really upsetting, and I feel like, um, you know, we still live in a world where, like you said earlier, like these issues are so prevalent, and I think sometimes people would like to think that we're past these problems and like societal problems um, that impact like young women and girls. Um, and women in general, like everywhere and anyone who is different in any way. And it's, it's upsetting. And I'm, I'm so sorry that the programming ended because I know that from what you've described, it positively impacted so many people. Yeah. There were a thousand girls that went through the program here in Ottawa oh over the 10 years that the organization was around. I was involved with it for, um, five years and, um, it, uh, I, I, I can't even tell you like just how much I learned from it about people, all people, not just girls and women, but people. And I learned a lot about relationships and like actually um, what it takes to build and maintain like really safe relationships with people. Um, and so, yeah. It was really something when we finally said that we had to close it down and we had a lot of people reaching out to us saying, no, you can't do this. Um, like, you know, and I'll tell you, it takes um, more than, you know, two people who are doing everything that they can to run, manage and make sure that something's being delivered and trying to meet the needs out there. It takes a lot more than that. So yeah, I hope I hope something changes down the road um, to really address and and before anyone says what about the boys? Boys have needs. Boys have a lot of needs. They have different needs, and so you know I think that uh, I really believe that gender responsive programming is extremely important. Um, and the, the things that I've learned from Hannah and people who are doing this work, they're really at the forefront of education and, um, child development. Um, I, we just need to be paying so much more attention to that because I think that that's, although it's ultimately going to create healthier adults and, um, you know, and healthier workplaces, right. Including for lawyers. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. And I, can just hear in your voice how special a program it was and um, what a beautiful space you had created. And I can only imagine how difficult it was to, to make that decision. And I think, I think you had mentioned it happened during COVID when it just couldn't go on anymore. Um, I think it's going to be a long time that 
we're going to be slowly processing all the things that we lost during this period. And I mean, it's not over yet. <laughs> COVID's yeah. still a thing. Family still oh, it over Christmas. Still couldn't go see grandpa. You know, it's still yep. here. <laughs> we're yep. still yep. going to be dealing with this for a while. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think you've been able to take those values and things that you learned during that time and, and put it into your business and use that to, to serve others. Um, so not all is lost there, but um, on a happier note, we would love to hear a bit about what your favorite or proudest moment of your career would be. So this is something that I don't actually do every single day, right? Like I don't even advertise this service on my, oh God, I really need to work on my website for Choham. I need to work on both of them. It is so hard to keep things up while you're also just delivering for clients and trying to do all these other things. Um, but anyway, um, uh, this was something that um, a, a, a person had reached out to me about, and I knew them uh, through, uh, I, they were actually on a board of directors that had been one of my clients at, some, at, a, at one point. And uh, the person was transgendered and non-binary. And um, they reached out and they asked, um, if I knew anybody who would be able to be a commissioner of oaths for a name change application that they were doing. And, um, and I said, oh, like, can I do this? <laughs> so I'm one of those lawyers that's like, wait, can I, can I do this? So I like looked into all of it and I, I called a couple of my, um, you know, friends who, uh, you know, a, a, around this. And I was like, just, just making sure that I'm not like, missing something because it seems pretty straightforward Any, anyway. So I got back to this person and I said, I can do it for you, right? Like I can take care of it for you, no problem. Um, and I know that it is, um, I, I am not gonna say that it was necessarily something that was scary or anxiety inducing for this particular person, but I know that for people who are um, transgendered um, and, um, you know, you know, whose, whose genders change, you know, like that process of letting someone know, um, your, your birth name, um, like that's really sensitive and that's information that I don't think you put out there lightly. And I felt really, um, honored that they felt enough trust in me to ask me to do that. And, um, it was something that I was really happy to be able to, um, provide them like a safe relationship within which um, they could get somebody to provide, um, to do this for them for like a very administrative thing. Right. Um, and, it, you know, it was a really, it was a really big reminder for me about how so many of the things that I think a lot of us would see as so like blase, like just sort of like, they're like mundane, banal things that we have to do through these administrative processes, like just how, many barriers there are out there for people in getting support and services to do these things that like, I, I, I know there's so many things I, I'm just not even aware of. So yeah, I learned a lot from it and it was something that I was like extremely happy to do for them. Yeah. And it's really great that they had someone who understands the nuances of it and didn't just see it as an administrative process and really understood you know, the gravity of the situation. And so 
I think that's also really important too, that you were able to create that safe space for that person to, to feel comfortable in, um, in doing this pretty monumental um, change. So the, our favorite way of uh, ending the podcast is asking what is something new that you've learned recently? And we'd love to hear what you've learned. Oh, yeah. So um, have you guys ever heard of the, do you know Myrna McCallum, the trauma-informed lawyer podcast? Yes, we love her. She's an icon and a trailblazer. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so she's fantastic. And I actually took her course on trauma-informed justice and being a trauma-informed practitioner this last November. And one thing that I learned, which I think is so important. So, I mean, right now, um, in the last year or so, I've been doing a lot of work with organizations that are um, both Black and Indigenous-led. And um, uh, I'm very, very cognizant of my own social location. Uh, uh, you know, I'm Punjabi, and people will often mistake me, um, you know, as being Indigenous, but uh, but I'm Punjabi, and, you know, and, and my parents were immigrants, and, you know, and I have certain privileges and all of that. So, um, there was this uh, part of the course where Myrna introduced everybody to the concept of cultural humi humility and that being something to contrast to this, to a more common term that you see out there, which is cultural competence. And the word, the, the term cultural competence has always like rubbed me the wrong way. And a big part of the reason for that is like, it makes it sound like some kind of like a very like, I can open a book and I'm going to like learn this and this is a thing and I've memorized everything I need to do and that's it. And I know everything I need to know about these people, this like other culture out there. <laughs> and, um, and it's, you know, so, you know, it's, it, it is something that um, makes it sound like it's a one and done. And what Myrna introduced everybody to, which is actually, this is a concept that goes um, back um, actually a few decades um, and a couple of um, academic uh, women in the States, and I cannot remember their names or the name of the paper, but I did find it and I downloaded it. Um, there's the concept of, I think it's, I think it's really important we think about cultural humility and what that means is knowing I don't know everything. I will never know everything. And the only way for me to even start to build an understanding or, uh, you know, and to like respectfully approach people from another culture is from a place of building relationship. Like, so this all, like, there's a lot that goes back for me to the concept of relationships and healthy relationships. And so that was, you know, something over and over again that I saw in Dandelion and, and now, um, you know, uh, like as a, as a facilitator and, um, uh, there's a project I'm working on actually where which brings together my governance advisory work and my facilitation work um, and that's a project that is involving um, uh, women from several Inuit communities um, in Nunavut and I need to build a relationship with them like like there's no, there's no other way for me to start the conversation right and um, like, it's all about the relationship with them. And like, I can't go into it the way that a lot of lawyers might. Um, and, and in fact, I don't actually enter my relationships with my clients in a way which is like sort of, 
I'm really cognizant that like, you know, for a lot of people, very technical language can be very alienating. It can be very intimidating. Like when I'm dealing with a volunteer board of directors, the various levels of experience or the levels of, um, of like resources and all of that, you know, around the room, they, they differ so much. And so like, I actually feel like I need to enter those spaces with a level of humility, whether it's because there's a, there are people, uh, you know, from a culture I'm not familiar with or whatever, I need to enter those spaces um, from a place of humility because I need to understand what they're going through. I need to understand what's on their minds. I need to understand their context. And um, and that's when I can be the best lawyer possible, um, supporting them. Um, so that again, long and rambly, but yeah, cultural humility versus cultural competence. People, anybody out there like that, I just read like an article in the Harvard Business Review about psychological safety and it had the term cultural competence in it. And I was just like, like, <laughs> like just don't. So now it's like, it's really bugging me every time I see it. So let's make it a thing. Let's bang this drum. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that, Monica. I completely agree. In my last job, I worked at a First Nations health entity and um cultural competence and cultural humility were words that we were constantly, for lack of a better word, like investigating and like diving deeper into. And I by no means am the authority on these words or know enough about how to describe them. And, you know, we're all in a constant state of like learning and improving, but I agree with you. Like the concept of cultural humility is really distinct from cultural competence. And I laughed when you were saying um, cultural competence is like, okay, I sat down and read this and yeah. now I'm competent um, because that's just so not it. Um, so yeah, if anyone has not checked out Myrna McCallum's amazing podcast, The Trauma-Informed Lawyer, please yes. immediately go and listen. You're already in your podcast app right now. So please go and download some of her episodes. She's... Um, so incredible. And so Monica, thank you so much for bringing that up and for sharing that with us. We are so grateful you spent time with us today and shared all of your stories. I feel like we could, you know, continue chatting for hours and like, there's so much more to learn, but we are so grateful for your time and all of the goodness you shared with us today. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. This was really awesome. I, I, again, I feel like I ramble sometimes. I know I do, but, um, you know, but this was, I love a good conversation. So this was like really awesome. And I am looking forward to keeping in touch with both of you. Thanks for joining us for this episode. To stay up to date with the podcast, follow us on Instagram at off the tracks podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite listening platform for a brand new episode of off the tracks podcast every Tuesday.